what will you be doing exactly one year from today? You know, one year from this moment, what will we be doing? Any idea? It will be election day and we will be voting on a new president exactly one year from today. So one year from today in a little bit, we will know exactly uh, who the new president is. Kind of exciting. Uh, this past Tuesday was election day. We elected a new governor in Kentucky, a uh, new lieutenant governor, uh, Janine Hampton, the first African-American uh, in, to hold any state office in, in Kentucky. I think that's pretty exciting. We're really proud of that. Uh, don't know how she'll govern yet, but still excited about that historical moment. It's funny how it didn't make any news. Nobody talks about that. Every time a meth lab rolls out of a house trailer in Kentucky, it makes national news. But if, uh, if we elect Janine Hampton, that doesn't seem to make noise. Um, anyway, I want to talk politics today. I don't do this a lot with the congregation. It's not because I don't have political opinions. I do. It's not because I don't care. I really care. I'm kind of a politics junkie. Uh, I, I read constantly. I keep up. Uh, I, I really dig into all of that. I, I, am a, a, I love the debates. I watch those like some of you watch UK basketball. I really, really get into those things. I, I love it a lot. However, I don't preach a lot of politics in the pulpit. Um, I, I try to do what the Lord leads me to do. For the most part, I avoid any kind of partisan politics. Uh, you'll never hear me promote one candidate or one party because I just simply don't. But I do try to preach the word. And Psalm 146 today uh, really lends itself. It, 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 it gives us instructions on how to live as citizens and uh, how to think politically. So that's why I want to bring us to Psalm 146 today and simply preach the word and let everything else fall where it does. I was probably brought along in politics, first of all, by my grandfather. His name was L.D. Pearson. Um, my grandfather wasn't passionate about a lot of things, smoking, he smoked a lot, uh, but he loved, loved, loved the Democrat Party. He was a Democrat. There was no question about that. He was a Democrat, and he wanted me to be a Democrat, you know, and I was four, but, but he, was, he was all about the, the, the Democratic Party. I can remember watching the Democratic Convention with my grandfather on his big television. I also watched Three Stooges with him, and they're very similar, actually, but we would watch the Democratic Convention together. My grandfather was the kind of Democrat who would watch it on television and then, and then talk back to the guys. He would talk back to the politicians. He would actually yell, hoot, and holler at the politicians on TV. I mean, he watched this like it was a participatory sport. He talked back. And if they said something or did something he didn't like, he'd cuss them. I mean, right there in his living room, he just was like he was there. He was passionate. He cared. He was engaged. And, and here's the thing. To this day, I know that my grandfather was a Democrat and wanted me to be a Democrat. I do not know if he was ever a Christian. Which brings us to Psalm 146. And it brings us to something Jesus said in the Gospels when once he was talking about our obligations to the government, to the state, and governments, to God, and our allegiance to God. And what Jesus said was, give to Caesar, give to the government what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, give to God what belongs to God. So the basic principle there is that there are certain things that we owe to the state. There is an allegiance, a responsibility, a debt that we owe the government, but there is a debt, responsibility, and allegiance we owe to God. The important thing is for you to know the difference. You must know the difference between the things that belong to God and the things that belong to the state, and you must not give to one what belongs to the other. So Psalm 146, let's read together. This is good. Ten verses. 
uh, listen, if you will, and learn what we can about what it means to be good citizens. Psalm 146, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Let all that I am praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God with my dying breath. That's where it begins. Don't put your confidence in in princes, in powerful people. There is no help for you there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth and all their plans die with them. But happy are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He keeps every promise forever. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. He will be your God, O Jerusalem, throughout the generations. Praise the Lord. neighbors for years to the Dyer family. Uh, our son Wade grew up with Justin and Jacob and they played a lot together and which means 4th of July, we typically got included in the, in the big Dyer 4th of July party, which was huge. The Dyers did 4th of July huge, mostly because of Langdon and Thelma, but Langdon especially. Uh, God bless us. So Langdon loved this country, he loved the 4th of July. He fought for it, you know. He worked for Social Security Administration. He's a government worker. He was a true believer and he loved this country. Fourth of July, Langdon was all about it. We were all about it too, but, but there's something different between the way Langdon and his generation loved this country and the way my generation loves this country and then the kids behind me. We're, we're losing something. I think we can agree to that. Langdon was that generation that was fiercely devoted to the country. So we would be out there, they would roll out this giant uh, hay wagon and they'd load it down with food, mostly Thelma, just load that wagon down with food and we'd all be ready to eat hot dogs, hamburgers, I mean, it was a great picnic. Uh, right about the time Justin or Jacob, one of those guys, would you know, be about to put the first hot dog in his mouth, Langdon would go, wait, stop, stop the whole thing and wouldn't let us do anything until we had said the Pledge of Allegiance. We would stop on the 4th of July and say our Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. It, it was beautiful. It was amazing. That was Langdon. I mean, Justin would, you know, put his hot dog over his heart and, and say the pledge. Um, it, it's interesting. I grew up saying the pledge in school every day. I understand they don't always do that anymore because it's controversial somehow to say the pledge in a public school. I, I really don't get that. But, but no matter, understand that in the Pledge of Allegiance, there is this one little phrase, and it becomes the important phrase to those of us who are people of faith, and it is now the controversial phrase in the Pledge of Allegiance, and it is that little line that says, one nation under God. So, so those of us most devoted to the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, remember that that phrase you care so much about that one nation under God part, that's the most important thing. And it's the thing I want to remind you about as we begin this conversation today with Psalm 146. And that is simply that everything we pledge to the country, everything we pledge to the state, whatever allegiance we owe to the country, it's under God. There is a higher allegiance. Your primary allegiance has already been pledged as, as believers. You have to understand this. When I pledge to the United States of America, that is still a pledge I'm making under God. 
under God, which is to mean there is something higher. There's a higher allegiance, and that is the allegiance that I've already pledged to God. As a Christian, as a believer, I am pledged to God first. So my commitment to the country, my passion for the country, my enthusiasm, my love for the United States, it is still below my love and allegiance that I've pledged to God. I say this because of the way Psalm 146 begins. It says, praise the Lord. And it says, let all that I am praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God with my dying breath. Now, a lot of psalms start that way, so for that reason, some of us are kind of numb to that sort of language, that let all that I am praise the Lord, but you've just got to stop and let that sink in for a moment. Let, let everything about me be about him. That's what the psalmist says. This is the position of a person of faith. This is a position of the one that belongs to God. Let everything that I am be wrapped up in worship to him. Matt Betts defined worship last week as extravagant love and extreme submission. And that kind of extravagant love and extreme submission is only due to one, and that is one and one alone, God who is worthy. Do you understand that? Let all that I am praise him, worship him. My primary allegiance belongs to him. Let all that I am belong to him. Let all that I am praise him. This means let all that I am praise the Lord. May may the way that I love my wife praise the Lord. Let the way that I father my son praise the Lord. You understand this? Let the way that I preach praise the Lord. I want to praise the Lord in the way that I paint. Do you understand? I want to praise him with every blink of my eye. I want to praise him with every breath in my lungs. I want to praise him with every step of my feet. I want to praise him with everything my hands touch. I want to praise him with my sickness. I want to praise him with my health. I want to praise him with my poverty. I want to praise him with my wealth. I want to praise him in my joy, praise him in my sorrow, praise him today. I want to be praising him tomorrow. Let all that I am praise the Lord. This is what the psalmist says. My heart belongs to God. Everything that I am belongs to God. So everything else that I could offer, any other allegiances, they are somewhere down the stairs of priorities below the allegiance I have pledged to God and God alone. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't pledge allegiance to our country. I'm not saying that. I'm just reminding you that it's not primary allegiance. Your first allegiance is to the Lord. Let all that I am praise him. It's great that you love your country. It's wonderful that we have a patriotism that we give to our country, but we don't give our country ultimate allegiance. That is already pledged to the Lord God. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I love this country. I love this country. My generation, we've, uh, my generation really never fought the wars. The young guys behind me have, but, but I didn't. I'm 50 years old. I've, I've lived relatively in peace At the same time, as a pastor, as a man who's lived 50 years, I've seen a lot of changes in in my country, and it breaks my heart. As I said, I grew up in school where we always said the Pledge of Allegiance. It's just what you did. Our teachers led us in the Pledge of Allegiance. I also would say that at Rich Pond School, where I went to elementary school years ago, um, Ms. Johnson in particular, she used to read Bible stories to us at the beginning of every single day. I first heard the story of Samson and Delilah 
from Ms. Johnson, and it's my favorite Bible story to this day. This godly woman shaped me, and she was my third grade public school teacher. But I know it's not like that anymore. I, I, I know that. I, I understand that. And like a number of you, uh, when I look at the direction that our country seems to be slipping and sliding toward it, it, it troubles me. I hear people say that America seems to be becoming a, a godless nation, and, and part of me agrees with that. I, I see what you're talking about. There's this sense that our nation is, is backsliding. But if that is true, and the degree to that is true, then we have to question why and what exactly does that mean? If, if our country is somehow forgetting God or sliding away from God, what does that say? Very, very simply, our country from the very constitutions just simply says, you know, we the people. This country is not something abstract, it's, it's we the people. So if we are a nation that is sliding away from God, then we are a people that are sliding away from God. Do, do you understand that? It's not that the nation somehow is backsliding, we are, are, are backsliding. It was 1962 when the government said no more prayer in schools, and that's three years before I was born. I, I never really prayed in school. I mean, I, I did lots, but I mean, the teachers didn't lead us in, in prayer. Some people have said that you can, you can trace a lot of the decline, the moral decline in our country from 1962 when they took prayer out of schools. I remember in the band room at Warren Central when I was in high school, they had the Ten Commandments hanging right there in the band room, and, and almost every other place in that building had the Ten Commandments hanging, that they took all that out. And some people say when they took the Ten Commandments out of public places, when they stopped letting kids pray in school, that that's when it declined. I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I think that our kids suffer not necessarily because they're not being led to pray in school, but because they're not being led to pray in their homes. Did you understand that? I really think the problem is not that they're not being led to pray in school. They're not being led to pray in, in homes. Let's be serious about this. The, the real problems in this country may have less to do with the man that lives in the White House and a lot more to do with the man that lives in your house. The problems in this country come down to us. It, it's not so much that they don't have the Ten Commandments hanging in the band room at Warren Central. Do you understand that? It's that those of us who say that we live according to God's standards, we don't teach those standards to our own kids. You don't have the Ten Commandments hanging in your house. What do you care if it's at the courthouse? Do you understand? I mean, let's be really serious. How devoted and important are these things to us? If, if our country ever has backslidden, is forgetting God, that's not anybody's fault but ours. We are the people of God. We are the salt and light in this nation. And if this nation is walking in darkness, that says more about us than it does about our government. Did you understand that? Very, very simply, a revival in this nation begins with a revival in your own home. The scripture says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. Do you see that? So there's this promise of a revival in the land, but it comes at the end of a long line of things that God's people do first. 
You see that? So if there's going to be a great revival in this nation, it's going to start in your house. It's going to start in your heart. And until you and I come back to God, this nation will never come back to God. Until our children are being taught to pray in the house where they live, you understand? It won't matter how many prayers are possibly prayed at a football game. Understand? It's our responsibility. We are God's people in this nation, the salt and the light. I'm telling you, a lot of us want to blame the government. We want to blame the country. We just shake our heads and wag our fingers and talk about how the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. Well, that says more about us than it says about the government. Do you see that? The revival begins in our own home. It starts with us. But we want good leaders. We need good leaders. We all know that. It's a democracy. And we all get to vote and we all have a say. And we want to think that we can put people in the halls where they make decisions that affect all of us and that those men and women will make good decisions. You know, Psalm 146 talks about that. It really, really does. I don't know how devoted you are to politics or to your political party. But God's word speaks to all of us in Psalm 146. Let's start in verse 3. It says this, don't put your confidence in princes, in powerful people. There is no help for you there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth and all their plans die with them. Okay, so basically the psalmist says if you put all of the politicians in one big room, Put all the politicians in one big room. He says, you could look across the whole bunch of them and you could say, there is no help for us in them. All of them together, the good ones, the bad ones, all your favorites, the ones you vote for and the ones that you can't stand. You understand? Put them all together. And the psalmist says, you know, if you put all of them, add them all up, there's, it, it equals no help. Now, I don't know if it's just the way I'm reading the Bible here, but that sets expectations very low. No help, no help. Do not put your confidence in those people. I would say don't put strong hope in weak people. Don't put strong hope in weak people. Now, which ones are weak? That's what you want to know. And you're thinking, well, it's the Republicans that are weak. It's the Democrats that are weak. It's Hillary Clinton that's weak. No, no, no. The psalmist tells you exactly which ones are weak, and it would be all of them. All of them. Why? Because they're rotten, good-for-nothing liars. No, that's not what the Scripture says. That's not what the Scripture says. It simply says this. There's no help for you with them. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth, and all their plans die with them. I mean, let's say we're talking about a good one, the best one. If there's ever been just a great politician, a great honest person who is going to lead and make good decisions, just a good one, a godly one, you can't put your confidence in them either for the simple reason that they're human. Human like the rest of us, they're human. No matter how much they promise, and no matter how much they intend, a whole lot's gonna be dropped off in the follow through. Do you understand? They're not gonna keep all their promises because they just can't. And no matter how long they're there and how long they can do good, they won't be there forever. They're gonna die, they're human. They're human, which means they are flawed. They don't have perfect wisdom. They don't have perfect faithfulness. They don't have perfect nothing. And then they die, and all their plans just die with them. It's over. Do you understand? Do not put strong hope in weak people. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth, and all their plans die with them. But happy, 
are those who have the God of Israel as their helper. Happy are those whose hope is in the Lord. He made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in it. He keeps every promise forever. Okay, so the psalmist says two things. Don't put strong hope in weak people. And it would also say, don't expect a candidate to make you happy. Don't expect any candidate to make you happy. They won't. One year from today, we're going to elect a new president. And I don't, know, I don't know who he or she will be. Do you understand? But whoever wins, that person is going to make a whole lot of people unhappy. And by the end of their term, almost everybody will be unhappy with them. Do you understand that? There's not a candidate in the world who's ever going to make us happy. That's why the psalmist says, happy are those who, what? Have the God of Israel as their helper. Happy are those whose hope is in the Lord your God. You put your strong hope in a strong God and you won't be disappointed. If you'd like to know a little bit about his campaign, it's simply this. He made heaven and earth. Now that's power. He made the sea and everything in it. Verse 6. He keeps every promise forever. You can't say that about any politician you've ever known. God and God alone keeps every promise forever. You put your strong hope in a strong God. Don't expect a candidate to make you happy. Only God can satisfy your soul. You understand that? In our uh, country, we have basically a two-party system. Some people don't like that, but it, it is what it is. We have two parties, uh, Republicans, Democrats. We got both in this church. It's funny because no matter which party you're in, you probably think that most everybody in this church is more or less like you. Uh, you don't read Facebook, y'all? I mean, y'all just back and forth all the time. I mean, it's just all over. Um, I'm not going to step into that. I won't step into that. I, I'm not going to promote or degrade either political party because honestly, I don't belong to either political party. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. Go figure that out. Uh, I vote every election, but I'm, I'm neither. I, I, I'm not affiliated with a party. And today, whatever, wherever you fall with that, I want to bring you back to Scripture. Because I simply want to suggest to you that, that both parties in our country are very flawed. Would you at least admit that? Even your party is not perfect because it's made up of people. But more importantly, neither party really presents a complete biblical picture of what God wants for the world, for what God would want for society. Both parties have an incomplete platform. And you've got to acknowledge and recognize that. Even the party that you love and work for, you've at least got to be honest enough to say, my party is not perfect. It doesn't present a perfect biblical view. A couple of years ago, a, a guy came by the church. It was election time. He wanted to know if he could put some voter guides on our, some nonpartisan voter guides on the table at our church. Um, actually, I'm always a little bit allergic to that. I, I'm just a little uncomfortable with that. And, and again, it's not because I don't agree sometimes with what's on the table. It's just I, I struggle sometimes. And so I, he actually sat down with me. We talked through the whole thing, and, and it was a voter guide because he said he thought that the churches needed to know uh, how to vote values. They, they need to know how the values that matter line up. So they had, the, you know, he said the biblical values all lined up, and you could see where all the candidates kind of measured up. The problem was 
his definition of all the biblical values and, and the Bible's definition of all the biblical values didn't measure up. You understand that? So basically he had picked his list, as some group had picked their list of, 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 of important issues, but the other issues weren't there at all. And this is what I'm saying. There's not a party, there's not a voter guide. I've never seen anybody yet that presents a whole biblical vision for the country except for the Bible. So look at the Bible with me. By the time I get to verse 10, I'm going to make everybody equally mad. So I'm accepting that. But let's look at God's word. Let's start with verse 7. And let me just suggest to you this. And to commit yourself to kingdom principles. You may have a party platform that you're somehow uh, committed to. But as a believer, be a Christian first. And commit yourself to kingdom principles. And then as you look at your party's platform and you hear politicians speak, then come back and measure what they stand for based on the values, the things that God says he cares about. All right? So these are some of the things God cares about. Let's start right here in verse 7. He gives justice to the oppressed. And the list of things that God cares about. He gives justice to the oppressed. Justice is fairness. It's making sure that people get what they deserve. It's, it's fairness, just basic fairness. And God cares a lot about the way the, the oppressed are treated. Oppressed are those who are held down. Now, we can argue about why they're held down. You'd probably say, well, they're held down because of choices they make on their own. And you're probably partly right, but most all of us get in trouble out of a combination of choices we make and then choices that we didn't make. There's, there's a whole lot of complicated issues that would describe how people end up in the shape they're in. But the Bible doesn't do a lot of parsing that out. It just continues to put God on the side of those who are held down, continues to put God on the side of those who need lifting up. Those who are lifted, uh, are, are, are pressed down, God always goes and lifts them up. Do you understand that? God wants fairness for the uh, oppressed. He wants food for the hungry. He gives food to the hungry. Some of you are thinking, ah, Brother Tim, I know you're a Democrat. You said you weren't either, but you're already a Democrat. You're already. I'm, I'm not. I'm probably not a Democrat because as much as they talk about these things, they don't follow through. I don't see follow through. They talk about these things, but, but they don't follow through. But understand something very, very important to me. If there are hungry people in our community, I don't blame the government. If the person at the end of my road doesn't have enough food to eat, I think he's my neighbor. And I think scripture says an awful lot about how I treat my neighbor. Understand, if Woodburn has a lot of people who are poor and without food, and we do, I don't blame Obama for that. I blame Woodburn Baptist Church for that. We have much more influence in the lives of the people who live in the shadow of this steeple than Obama ever will. You understand that? This is God's word for God's people first. And this is our responsibility. We've got to feed the hungry. We're having a food drive next week, Warren announced. Well, what does that even mean? It means that some of us will go home and say, oh, food drive. You'll go home and you'll bring out that can of, of sweet potatoes that you didn't eat last Thanksgiving. Tell the truth. Or that like pumpkin pie filling. We'll get like 50 cans of pumpkin pie filling. Now think about being a family that has no food and all of a sudden they get your pumpkin pie filling. What are they going to do with that? They're going to make a pie? 
They go eat pumpkin pie, fill it out of the can. Do you understand what I'm saying? We ought, to have a, a, we ought to have a mountain of food they could see from outer space at this church next week for food drive. I mean, are we serious about feeding the hungry or not? I mean, the scripture says that this is something God cares a great deal about. Do we? Do we really? He gives justice to the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He frees the prisoners. Oh, no. You can't just free all the prisoners. God cares a lot about those who are incarcerated. It's really funny. On our prayer list here at church, we pray for all kinds of things. We pray for every kind of cancer and sick person. We pray for the heartbreak of psoriasis. We, we pray for hemorrhoids. I mean, we pray for everything. But until lately, we hardly ever mention people in jail. I've had people come up to me and say, Brother Tim, I don't really want this on the prayer list, but would you pray for my son? He's in jail. It's almost like if someone is, is incarcerated, we don't speak their name anymore. There's so much shame in that for us. Some of you have children in jail and it never gets mentioned in church. It's just too shameful to, to, to say out loud. Why are we that way? The scripture says, pray for those in jail as if it were you in jail. Now, if I ever go to jail, y'all better be praying, praying me out of that place. You understand? I, I mean, I, I won't last. I mean, y'all saw me with toddlers up here, man. They, I mean, I won't last in, in, in the pokey. I mean, I, I just won't, won't, won't make it pray. But that's what the scripture says. God cares. God continues to care. Now, some of those men and women incarcerated, they, they deserve to be there. And honestly, if you've ever visited the jail, if you haven't, you should. You find out very quickly, a whole lot of them recognize that they're there for crimes that they committed. I've preached on death row in Eddyville, and those guys will tell you, yeah, I did it. I'm paying the price for the crimes that I committed. They, they expect that one day they will execute it. I mean, that's just the reality. But a good handful of those guys, they've met Jesus in prison. And it's pretty amazing to understand that even though their body remains in prison, paying the penalty for their crimes, they've been set free by God just the same. God has set their soul free. And even though they know that they have sinned in ways that they must pay the state, they recognize that in Christ their debt is completely paid free. That's grace. He is the God who sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. Now recognize in Scripture, there's not a lot of understanding of how people get sick. They don't understand anything about germs or bacteria. They don't understand what happens inside the body at all. So when they talk about physical illness, physical sickness, it's always describing things that you can see. They talk a lot about skin diseases because the skin is an organ that you can see. They talk about ears going deaf and eyes going blind because those are all the symptoms that you simply could never miss or hide. So when the scripture says that God is the one who cares about the eyes of the blind, then recognize this is a God who cares about the bodies of sick people, all sick people. God cares about how sick people are treated. He's on the side of healing, always on the side of healing. There he goes again. I knew the pastor was a Democrat. No, but I'm telling you, God cares about sick people. Have you not read the ministry of Jesus, how he just goes about healing people? He healed people and he still wants to see people healed. And if we're going to care about the things that God cares about, we have to care about health care. We really, really do. Now, I'd go on to say if my neighbor's at the end of the road and he is sick, that's more my responsibility than Obama's responsibility. He's my neighbor. He's my neighbor. But God cares about him, and we should care about the things that God cares about. He lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. Verse 9, the Lord protects the foreigners among us. 
a huge immigration debate raging in our nation right now, and some of you are involved in it. I follow you on Facebook. However you come out on that, this is where you begin. You begin with the knowledge that God is the God who protects the foreigners among us. So next time you're behind some lady at Kroger and she's uh, standing there having trouble because she doesn't speak the language and you just want to scream out, speak English. Come back to this verse right here that says the Lord protects her, the foreigner among us. The next time you hear the politicians talking about what to do with the foreigners among us, you just keep coming back to this. The Lord protects them. He cares. He, he cares. He cares for the orphans and the widows, it says, verse 9. Orphans and widows in the biblical world were the most disadvantaged, the, the, the most destitute. If you were a, a widow, you had no hope. If a woman wasn't connected to a man, there was no opportunity for her to have anything. Understand, she couldn't just go get a part-time job at the Waffle House because she had nothing. So if people did not have compassion and show kindness to widows, then the widows would die of starvation. That's reality. Orphans were even worse off. Without parents to care for them, if somebody didn't bring in the children who had no one to care for them, the children would die. So in our day, there's still orphans and widows. There are still those who absolutely need our help. But I would have to add to this list the unborn, would I not? Listen, those of you who are on Netflix, go home tonight or tomorrow, look up the documentary that's called Twice Born. It's a documentary. It's a documentary series coming from the special delivery unit. And what they continue to show are surgeries done on babies inside the womb. They do surgeries on babies inside the womb. They cut away tumors. They repair spina bifida in the womb. They sew the womb back up. The baby gets born in nine months. It's absolutely amazing. Tiny little babies. Last night they did surgery on a baby that weighed 14 grams. Understand, one gram is a paper clip. This baby weighed as much as 14 paper clips. They did surgery. She lived. Amazing. And you may be a part of the party that, that, that prizes choice. You stand for choice, but, but do you want to, do you really want, do you really want to live in a country where babies are harvested for parts or, or profit? Again, no matter where you fall in terms of party affiliation, do you support that? You really want to live in a, in a country? Do you live, want to live in a world where babies in the womb can just have their lives snuffed out and then sold for parts? Dissected like frogs in a lab? I, 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 I can't imagine because Scripture says that the Lord knew us in our mother's womb. That he's the one who knits the little one together inside the mother's womb in the darkness and silence. He is there knitting those parts. That's God's. It's holy. You think life's not sacred? And if it's sacred, it's sacred in the womb. And if it's sacred, it's sacred all the way from womb to tomb. You understand? We, we care for unborn babies, but we care for the poor. And we care for people of all races. And we care for widows and orphans. We just care about life. It, it's sacred. It comes from God. 
The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows. The Lord frustrates the plans of the wicked. In other words, God is a God who doesn't want to see the wicked people win. God is a God who's going to punish the wicked and reward the righteous. God is a God of ultimate justice. That's what the scripture says. Now, there are probably even more things we could add here, the things that God cares about, but the list at least is that long. So whenever you begin to vote, when you ever begin to look at your party's platform, start with the Bible. Start as a Christian first. You understand your first allegiance is already pledged. And so if you're a part of, of, of either party, get up in somebody's face and hold them accountable for, for actual righteousness and goodness. Hold them accountable for all of the values, not just some of the values that are convenient for your party. You understand we're, we're God's people, we're believers, we're salt and light in this world. Close up. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll do this quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 2, New Testament, just another word about citizenship, this time from Paul in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. This is the why and the what right here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings. We could say presidents, governors. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that, so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is only one God, one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. We have to pray for our leaders. Your first obligation before God is to pray for them. Honestly, some of you talk about them a lot, but you don't pray for them at all. If you were required to pray for Obama every time you say something nasty about Obama, you wouldn't have any hours left in the day. Your obligation is to pray. As God's people, we, we pray. Well, what do we pray for? Well, simply intercede on their behalf. You intercede. You, you pray that God will bless our president, our governor, all the way down the line. You just pray for these people. Ask God to bless them. They really do have influence. They make decisions that affect people's lives in a big way. We need to pray that they'll have godly wisdom. And that the things they say that are good, that they'll follow through on those things, that they won't just be words, but will be true convictions from genuine hearts. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. You need to be giving thanks for these people, for these public servants. But why? Pray this way for kings and all people who are in authority so that, so that, so that we can live in peace and quiet, marked by godliness and dignity. You see, what God wants for us is just this blessed society where people just get to live in peace without the government bringing them down their neck. Live in peace and quiet and godliness and dignity. Just want everybody to have dignity and everybody to have peace. But that's what God wants. It's the kind of thing we all want, but, but God has a purpose here. This is good and pleases God our Savior because he wants everyone to, verse 4, What's everybody be saved? God wants everybody to be saved. In other words, for God, it's the gospel that matters. We want people to be saved, but people have a really difficult time hearing and responding to the gospel message if, if they're sick and they can't have access to the medicine that would heal them. 
It's very difficult to hear and respond to the gospel when you're hungry, but the restaurant next door is throwing out food out the back door. You're saying it's very difficult to hear and receive the gospel when you don't live a life of peace and quiet and godliness and dignity. So the reason why we want good government is so that there won't be political chaos, so people will be able to hear and receive the gospel. It's the gospel that counts. So one year from today, you're going to step into a voting booth and choose a president. God help us. I've watched all the debates. I don't have a lot of confidence in any of them. I'm sorry. Help me. I don't. So we need to pray. What do we pray? Well, if God says pray, intercede on their behalf, give thanks to God for them, give thanks for them. Thank you, God, for Donald Trump. Give thanks. If God's ultimate goal is that everybody be saved, then let's just pray that whatever's best for the gospel, not what's best for the Republican Party or what's best for the Democratic Party or what's just what's best for the gospel, Lord. Whatever happens in this election, whatever happens with our leaders, make it be good for the gospel. Make it work so that more and more people in this great nation will come to know the God who alone is great. Pray for the good of the gospel. And I remind you, the gospel, that's our work. It's not going to be the public school's work to teach your kids about Jesus. That's your job, sir, ma'am. It's your job. I wish kids could pray in school. I'd be more concerned that they learn to pray in this church. Let's get them here and teach them how to pray. And then teach them how to pray in your house. This is our work. This is our job. It's not the government's work. We are salt and light in the world, are we not? We're the church, and the church is the hope of the world because the gospel is the hope of the world. Let's pledge our highest allegiance to God and Jesus Christ and the gospel. Let's love our country. Let's pray for our leaders. They need prayer. Let's pray.